You know, we're starting this letter because we want to settle one of the most important questions a Christian can ask themselves. Uh, This is one of those questions that keep you up at night. Until you are assured, until you know for certain, this is one of those questions that should, should be on the forefront of your mind as a believer in Jesus Christ. How can I know for sure that I have eternal life? How can I know for sure that the moment that I die and I close my eyes here in this world, that I will open them in heaven in the presence of the Lord for all eternity? How many of you think that's an important question to settle and to answer? I do too. And this is based upon a recent survey that we looked at together at a church some several weeks ago from the American Culture and Faith Institute. They did one of the most exhaustive surveys concerning the authenticity of individuals who call themselves, label themselves Christians. Out of 6,000 individuals in whom they surveyed, they discovered that only three out of ten individuals surveyed, though considering themselves a Christian, truly answered the survey correctly to determine that they were born again. Three out of ten. Out of those three that were clearly uh, discovered to be born again, only one out of those three were living their Christian faith as they should be. And these statistics were troubling to me, to say the least. And it begged the question that we asked in our message called the state of the church, do these individuals, do they really believe that what they believe is really real? Is it really true what they believe if they are not willing to act upon it? And then we began to explore a couple other questions in this message. It's online. You can find it on our website. We asked the question, can one believe something and not truly act upon it? And we came to the resounding conclusion, no. You cannot truly believe something and not act accordingly or act upon that belief. And then we asked the question a little bit more specifically, can one truly be a Christian and not act on their belief? And we didn't even presume to answer that question without scriptural authority And we found that James already answered that question for us, and he said no, that it is not possible for one to truly be a Christian, truly be saved, and not act upon their beliefs. Now, before we go any farther, I want to make it abundantly clear that we are not advocating a works salvation. We we believe here at Calvary Chapel that we are saved by grace and grace alone. By faith, we embrace the grace that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. That faith, that faith alone, is what saves us. But we also stated that those who have been truly saved will also be radically changed. You can't encounter God without being radically changed, can you? Uh, Every individual that interacted or encountered God was radically changed. In fact, At one point, this man's hair even changed colors. His name was Moses. Interacted with God, went up, 
dark-haired possibly, came down completely white-haired. When Isaiah encountered God, he fell on his face before the Lord, and he said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. You can't encounter God authentically and not be changed. So in the light of this information, we then ask the question, how can we know for certain that we have eternal life? And this is again a question that we should not and will not answer without the authority of Scripture behind it. And the Apostle John wrote a letter to all of us for this specific purpose alone. It is this letter that we will be looking at together over the next several weeks. And we are going to do so to settle the question that we may know that we have eternal life. Many Christians over the years that I have been a pastor have surprised me by telling me that they did not believe that eternal life is something that they could know for sure they had until they died. And I said to them, I said, that's like ordering insurance for your car on the internet and wondering if it's really active after you get into an accident. Think about that for a moment. I then led them to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus states very clearly that in that day many will stand before me and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a sobering verse to say the least. These individuals conducted and walked through life thinking they were right with God only to discover that after their death they stood before Him to only discover at that moment when it was too late that He never had that relationship with them and they with Him that He desired and mandated for them to have. The book of 1 John, I believe followed up the gospel in which John wrote. It's the same John. And in the gospel of John, he clearly states at the end of that gospel his purpose for writing it. He says in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written... He's saying, that which I have written to you, I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Don't you love it when the author just clearly gives you the purpose of his writing to you? Well, when he followed up the Gospel of John with the book of 1 John. In 1 John 5.13, he tells us that he wrote this letter to all of us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? 
What? No. That you have eternal life. This is it. This is the purpose of 1 John. I've written this letter to you that you may know that you have eternal life. I've written this letter to you to settle that question that may be at the forefront of your mind keeping you up at night. I've written this letter so you may not deceive yourself into thinking that you're saved when you truly are not. I've written this letter to you so you don't experience that awful moment before the Lord and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. I wrote this letter that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's the question we are going to settle as we go through this beautiful letter together. And how are we going to settle or resolve this question The letter is written as if it were a series of questions written to an individual to be answered rhetorically within the mind of the reader. And as you answer these questions, you will discover if you truly are in Christ or not. And as a result, when you make that discovery, when you answer those questions honestly, when you gain that assurance... He states very clearly in 1 John 1.4, he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And the word our there means John and ours. Some of your translations may write, uh, you may have the word your joy may be fulfilled. Why is that? Well, because the Greek word is literally one letter different between those two words. For the word our, it has a U, and for the word your, it has an E. And so each is correct, that our joy may be full and that John may be settled in his mind that we are assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't know if there is a more important question that we can ask ourselves. Now, some of you might be getting a little nervous at this point. Okay, whoa, 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 this is, this is a big deal. I don't do good on tests. Um, I didn't study and prepare for it. I don't know how I'm going to answer. And some of you might be getting very nervous. But I tell you that whatever you discover going through this book together with us, you can be joyful over the result. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and this, and this letter assures you of your salvation in Jesus Christ, past the point of doubt, you can be joyful because of that, can't you? If you discover as you go through this letter that you aren't right with God and that you do not have the assurance of eternal life, I say to you that that reality then can lead you to get right with God and therefore know that you have eternal life and you can be joyful for that also. So it's a win-win. You can't fail this test. But it will assure you either way. And here is a great place to get real and right with God, isn't it? That's what church is all about. None of us are perfect. None of us have been perfected. 
All of us wrestle with doubts at time uh, and time again. But I don't want any of you deceiving yourself. Thinking that you are right with God when you may not be because those statistics in which we just read tell me that there are a lot of people that are walking in uh, an era of days and confusion. And I don't want our church to be in that fog. At the same time, I want you and I as believers in Jesus Christ to be assured of our salvation. I think it is so important that we be confident of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And it isn't just me. There was a man named Paul who felt it was equally uh, important that you feel confident in your assurance of your salvation in Jesus Christ. When he was writing concerning the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, he began with the helmet of salvation. He knew that if a believer could be um, moved off of his uh, place of confidence in his assurance of his salvation in Christ, that that believer would begin to vacillate. If you're not sure of your salvation, the enemy can start playing um, havoc with your mind and with your heart and with your life. So Paul says, put that helmet on. And that helmet is the assurance of salvation. But it's not only our head in which we need to guard. Jesus told us that that in which we stand on is either going to be rock or sand depending on what we have chosen to stand upon. If you're standing on sand, that sand might be very deceptive. It may support you for the moment. But Jesus said that when the storms of life come, when trials, troubles, and tribulations begin to pound upon your life, that sand is going to be washed out from underneath you and you're going to fall. But if you're on the rock, His teaching, His Word, the Gospel, then those storms are still going to come but you're going to weather the storms and you're going to stand in the moment and in the face of those troubles, trials, and tribulations. So having assurance in our salvation is key crucial for our Christian faith. And God wants us to know for sure. Why do I know that? Because John wrote it to us. Remember what he said? I have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So, with that being said, are you prepared to take the test? All eyes are upon you. Let us begin by reading the cover letter to our test, which is the first four verses of John's letter to us. It is a prologue, an introduction. It is the basis and foundation upon all that is written thereafter. That which was from the beginning, verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim uh, to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you 
too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, yours and mine, he is saying, joy may be complete. As we begin this letter, let us understand that John now is an elderly man. It is most likely that he is the last of the living apostles at this time. And as he is writing this letter, he is writing it at that stage of, in his, of his life that he is wanting to consolidate and concisely write to those in whom he loves that which is important. So as he writes these words to the church, he understands that their assurance, their need to know that they have eternal life is detrimental, key crucial for the future of the health of the church. And so as he begins to write this between 90 and 95 AD, he is in the city of Ephesus writing as he is again an elderly man coming to the end of his life. And within this letter we discover that there was something stirring about that was challenging the thinking of these new Christians. That was persuading them and wooing them away from the authentic Christian faith to a faith of falsehood, a cult, if you were, that will lead them into utter destruction. At this point, it appears that the ideology that later became known as Gnosticism was beginning to permeate throughout the culture of the Greek world. These were those individuals that prided themselves upon knowledge and knowledge alone. They believed that all that was important to an individual is what they knew and how intelligent they were, especially when it comes to the ordinances of this Gnostic. And Gnostic is from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And they then saw the rise of Christianity and wanted to incorporate that as part of their thinking. And so this fraction began this first cult began and as it began it started to draw away those who were truly following christ into something that was going to lead them into utter destruction and john's concerned about this because they didn't believe in the incarnation of christ their idea was that the Spirit was divine, but all fleshly, all material um, uh, essence was evil. And so that God could never come in the form of a man because carrying a fleshly body would be considered evil. And so they were denying that Jesus was ever man. Or if he was, a Christ spirit came upon him and then right before his crucifixion, the Christ spirit departed from him. Now John, the champion of the deity of Jesus Christ, says this is a falsehood. This is a false Jesus. This is a false God. There are many Jesuses in the world today. Let us understand that. But only one of them is true. Let's be clear about that. 
I am saying that the true, authentic Jesus Christ that is capable in saving a person is found in the Word of God. If you talk to an individual in the Mormon tradition, you will find that they have a much different Jesus. Or one who is a Jehovah's Witness has a much different Jesus than you do. A Jesus that cannot save. A Jesus that cannot grant eternal life. So John knew that them following this, priding themselves on knowledge, not caring about what they do in the flesh, meaning that they could have all the knowledge of God and yet they could sin like, uh, like one who has no knowledge of God. John says that's inconsistent and that is uncharacteristic of one who is truly a Christian. So as this is stirring, John is writing to combat this. He wanted Christians to understand how important right living was for the believer in light of the right knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now we'll expand upon this thinking as we go through the text and where the text is reflecting a rebuttal to that thinking. I'll bring that to your attention as we go through the letter. But as we begin this morning, he opens with a prologue. John loves prologues. In his gospel, the first 18 verses, some of the most theologically deep and rich verses of the gospel of John are found there at the beginning in the prologue, demonstrating aptly the deity of Jesus Christ. And so in the first four verses of his epistle, his supplementary letter. He begins with a shortened prologue, which is equally important. These words set the tone, the foundation for everything that is written after it. It is like hearing those words, once upon a time, inspired by a true story, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. John begins with, in the beginning. Now I want to be clear, he did not begin this in a clever way simply to gain the audience's attention with some catchy introduction, but this theological foundation is the foundation that he will build upon throughout the course of the entire letter. And what John is saying here as he begins, he says, and if I may sum up, I summed it up this way for you. These four verses can be summed up in this manner. The word of life brought eternal life that we may have fellowship and that fellowship leads to complete joy. That's what he is saying here. That the word of life brought eternal life that we may have fellowship that leads to complete joy. That's what he is writing to us in these verses. Let's begin in verse 1. Now that which was from the beginning, the beginning of what? This is in a very identical manner in which he starts the gospel. He is talking about the beginning of all things. In the beginning of the beginning, that which was the beginning, in the beginning there was the beginning. If I may expound upon the tense of the Greek there. From this very beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life is referring to the person of Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God and from the beginning with God and was God himself. This individual manifested himself before us. We have seen him with our eyes. We have heard him. We have touched him with our hands. We have looked upon him concerning this word of life. It is an eloquent way of saying we had a personal relationship with God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the theme for this entire letter. That in which Christ has brought on to you and I the ability to have eternal life. And if you will, look with me in a a moment here in John 1, 1 through 4. Look at how similar this wording is to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Very similar. This is why we know that even though John did not introduce himself in this letter, we know that it was John who wrote this letter, and this is great evidence to that fact. But then he went on to say about the word of life in his gospel in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John is saying that the theme of this entire letter that I am writing to you is the person of Jesus Christ and the eternal life in which He has brought on to us. That through Him and Him alone is eternal life possible. John is establishing this and by using the words in which he has stated here in verse 1 and again in verse 2, if you would read with me, the life was made manifest, that is, revealed, uh, made physical. That's what he is saying. And we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You can already tell that he is refuting the ideas of the Gnostic individuals who believe that the the divine could only occupy spirit form. John is saying that whom we beheld was not only 100% God, but he was 100% man at the same time. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We had that relationship with him. And it is He that has given us the insight and the revelation describing and explaining how we too can have eternal life in and through Him. That's what John is saying to us here at this moment. I like what William MacDonald said when he said, The same one who existed from all eternity with God the Father came down into this world as a real man. The reality of His incarnation is indicted by the fact that Uh, The apostles heard him, saw him with their eyes, gazed upon him with with deep meditation, and actually handled him. 
The word of life was not a mere passing illusion, but was a real person in a body of flesh. And then the second point of the two first two verses is this. Not only did Christ manifest himself in human form, being 100% God and 100% man. In him is which we've heard, and it is in him that eternal life is possible. But what John is also doing for you and I and for his readers is he is assuring us of his credentials that he is, uh, has the authority to assure us in our eternal life. He is saying, I am a follower, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I was with him. I was trained by him. I heard him and what I have heard from him, I tell you. He's establishing his authority amongst us. He said that I have gotten this from Christ. Christ has sent me as his apostle. This gives me authority now to assure you in my letter that you have eternal life. If you found yourself having difficulty with a physical concern, such, I don't know, something's not working right in your body. I know as I get older, uh, things seem to cease working all of a sudden that were just fine the day before. Let me ask you, if you wanted to resolve that physical medical problem, would you go to a plumber? Would you go to an electrician? Would you go to a librarian? Would you go to WebMD? Okay, now I got all of you. No, you go to a doctor. Someone who is trained and someone who is an expert in that particular field to help you resolve your issue. John is saying, you can trust me. That I am able to speak on this issue. For I was with Christ himself. And what I am telling you, I've heard directly from him. I want to continue reading from William McDonald because he went on to say, I am glad that my knowledge of eternal life is not built on the speculation of philosophers or even theologians, but on the unimpeachable testimony of those who heard and saw and gazed at and handled him in whom uh, it was incarnate, It is not merely a lovely dream, but a solid fact, carefully observed and accurately recorded fact. That's what John is saying to us. I got it from Jesus. He's authorized me to take it to you in his apostolic authority. And as a result, this letter in verse 3, check this out. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship, number one, with us, that is the body of Christ, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. It appears that the Gnostics who were drawing away Christians from this newly found church we're using the enticement of, listen, we know the real truth. 
You know, these men are simple fishermen. They, they're from Galilee. They are uneducated. And they really are not knowledgeable enough to assure you of such things. And if you decide to leave them and to follow us, at that point, we will then reveal to you how one can know that they have eternal life. And John is saying that my authority comes from Christ. He's not standing there in his own authority. And that in which we saw and was manifested to us, it is what we are sharing with you. And we are confident that it will lead to fellowship, inclusion, unity with the body of Christ. And of course, the body of Christ is in fellowship with the Father and the Son. Promise number one. That you will learn if you truly have fellowship with the body of Christ and that fellowship with the Father and the Son. Throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament, I can make the argument that the Bible clearly teaches that before we can have right relationships with people within this world, we must first have a right relationship with God. It is the old access theory. If, if your vertical access is off kilter, your horizontal one will equal and mirror that, um, that uh, difficulty. But if you are right with God, your relationship with others will be right also. It is interesting to me that if you begin reading the psychological journals that are being released today, it is the essence of the deterioration of relationships that is truly being explored by many psychologists and psychiatrists today. Why are so many people having difficulties with relationships today? Well, I'll tell you why. We have replaced the vertical access that meant to that, men, that is meant to hold us in place, that vertical access, access is our relationship with God, we have replaced that. We have replaced that relationship with another relationship. And ever since we have replaced that relationship with another relationship, we have been off-kiltered with all relationships. We have replaced our relationship with God with a relationship with ourselves. And as a result, we have eroded and we have subjected our relationships with others to that faulty access this is where all of it comes from you must first love yourself before you can love others have you heard that you must build yourself in a foundation of self-esteem before you can be effective in your relationship with others. We have been listening to this for decades, and now we are reaping what we have sown. The only way we can have right relationships with others is if we first have that right relationship with God. And John says here, look at what he says. That which was manifested to us, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is saying, get the access right. The vertical will then bring into place the horizontal. And then as he closes, and he says, we are writing these things so that our, that is yours and mine, our joy may be complete. The word is 
fulfilled, it is satisfied, it is um, overflowing. Again, it is amazing to me that the number one goal of an American today is to be happy. Did you know that? And yet, in their pursuit of happiness, only 12% out of all of those who pursue happiness as their number one goal find that they have found it for any length of period of time, 12%. The happiness that the world is looking for, unfortunately, has to be created by and substantiated by and stabilized by every circumstance of life. As I use that illustration often of the individual with all the poles spinning the plates, all their plates must be spinning directly and perfectly before happiness can be obtained and maintained. But as soon as one of those plates ceases from spinning, the happiness is gone. The joy that John speaks of is so superior to the happiness that we are pursuing today. A happiness that cannot be defined because for each individual person that happiness is fulfilled differently. But John is saying that in the assurance of you knowing that you have fellowship with God and that fellowship is right, and within your fellowship with others, a joy can be obtained and maintained to completeness. The Bible speaks of joy and defines joy as a state of gladness and great happiness. That's what the joy of the Bible is meant to provoke. It is not a result of ourselves, but it actually flows from the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit within our lives, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc., So it is larger than ourselves. In fact, John wrote in his gospel to his his readers, As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so I have loved you. Now he says, abide in my love, the vertical. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, the vertical. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be what? Full. Overflowing. Look, I love what C.H. Spurgeon says about this. Fullness of joy means that you shall not only have as much joy as you can hold, but that it shall still keep on running. And then your capacity shall be enlarged, but still you shall be filled with joy. And so it shall continue forever. You just can't get enough of it. And when you do get enough of it, God's got even more of it to give to you. Isn't that awesome? The joy that you and I pursue is not found in circumstances that are forever changing and always subjected to perfection. Our joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ who is the picture completely and the image of utter perfection. That's where our joy is found. And that's where our joy is obtained and maintained. As we wrap up this morning, the word of life brought eternal life that we may have fellowship that leads to complete joy. And John said, I have seen it with my own hands. 
I've walked with him. I've talked with him. I've handled him. At that last meal, I'm the one that laid my head on his bosom. He was my friend. He was my king. He was my savior. I know him so authentically as I walked with him those years. And now at the end of my life, I am saying that I am departing to you what he has given to me. And I tell you that I speak with authority when it comes to the assurance of your eternal life that you find in Christ Jesus and him alone. Again, as John says very clearly in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, we've read the cover page. We've read the syllabus of what's going to transpire next. And next Sunday we will begin to start taking that test reading and exploring the different questions that John is going to pose to us as he brings us face to face with a myriad of contrasts, hoping that our hearts and our minds would be open to the Spirit to show us and to assure us that we are in Christ or to show us and to assure us that we are not in Christ and today is the day to get right with Jesus Christ.